Seattle's morning news. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien. Dave Ross is here, and uh, we're being joined by John Copeland. He is a media reporter at the New York Times and co-writer of a book called It's Not TV. It's about HBO, which I feel like has been around since I was a child. I remember when it was this forbidden television network, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Very curious as they celebrate their 50th anniversary, what stories we can pull out of John about HBO. Good morning, John. Hi, Colleen. Thanks for having me on. You know what I'm talking about in the the late 80s, early 90s, and we would sort of watch HBO through the squiggly lines, and it was this forbidden TV station? (laughs) Yeah, I sure do, but I have to admit, I had the keys to the Forbidden Palace. We Uh had HBO when I was growing up. You did? And like, it was incredible. Like Saturday nights at the Koblen household was like a very exciting moment because at 8 p.m., HBO would roll out a Hollywood movie Uh that had been in theaters just a few months earlier. And we literally, the whole family, got around the TV on a weekly basis. Yeah to watch HBO. So yeah, Cupid's Arrow struck me from a very early age. <laughs> and now it's just such a, I mean, I think about the shows that are on their Westworld Veep, and I know I'm missing so many. So why is it that you decided to write about HBO for its 50th anniversary? We've seen in the last 20, 25 years that television has changed significantly. Mm-hmm. It's changed in terms of volume. There are more shows, a lot more shows. And also the quality is just of a whole different order. And HBO, they were really the ones who drove that. HBO is really responsible for elevating television in a really revered art form in American culture. So I wanted to get into that and figure out, A, how did HBO do this? But B, HBO has also had a lot of challenges, especially in the last 10 or 15 years with the rise of streaming. You know, HBO has had this programming playbook that it has returned to over and over and over again, unlike Netflix. And Netflix is a data science and technology company. They like to call themselves an entertainment company these days, but fundamentally, its roots are in Silicon Valley. They would look at subscribers, what they were watching, and that would inform their programming choices. HBO, on the other hand, HBO for the last five decades has been a wholesaler. Mm -hmm. The cable and satellite companies, they're the ones who knew everything about customers. HBO is flying blind. So it's programming executives going back to the 1980s. They really were doing it by intuition and gut. And back then, everything they programmed was in response to what the broadcast networks were doing. If the broadcast networks were going one direction, HBO was going to go an entirely different direction. And sticking with that playbook and trusting its in-house artists That is how HBO has survived one nearly fatal blow after the next over the last few decades. So there is a battle going on between two different philosophies of programming, it sounds like. You have Netflix with their data-driven approach where they they figure out what you like and then they quickly move on to that program. Force-feed it to you. (laughs) That's right, before you can press exit, which is I'm always fumbling for the control. You know, I can't spend another hour watching you. And then you have the artists at HBO Uh, trying to do it using simply uh, intuition. And that's one of the fundamental tensions of our book, is exploring that theme. Casey Bloys, who's the head of programming at HBO now and has been since 2016, he said, you know, the thing about data is it can be helpful for things like marketing. It can inform things that happened in the past, but it doesn't tell you what's going to come next. It doesn't tell you about the future. As he put it, you know, if I told you in 2017, 2018, uh, I have a show coming out about a group of venal billionaires that's about to premiere. 
probably nobody would have told you that that's going to be ahead. And yet Succession has been wildly successful for HBO and it's won the best drama award at the Emmys twice. Same thing with The Sopranos. It tested horribly when they showed it to a focus group before it premiered. It did not do well. And HBO is like, okay, yeah, this is unusual. Mobster in therapy, not your conventional show, but we believe in it and we believe in David Chase. We're going to program it anyway. And who's winning it right now? Well, Netflix has more than 220 million subscribers. HBO and HBO Max, its streaming service, combined somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 some odd million subscribers. So by that count, Netflix is winning by a lot. But one of the reasons why Netflix is winning by a lot, outspending HBO and all of its rivals by a tremendous amount of money and getting that technology streaming right at a very early point. On the flip side, at this year's Emmy Awards, HBO cleaned up. Even with Netflix's much, much bigger budget, HBO won, I believe it was 12 more Emmy Awards than Netflix. And they took all the top categories as well, including Best Drama and including Best Limited Series with White Lotus. So it's who's winning? It's unclear right now. HBO's programming continues to shine. But Netflix, that is a formidable beast. There had to have been on the rise to 50 years in the industry, you know, misbehaving executives you talk about in your book and a few crucial miscalculations. What are some of the the slings and arrows over at HBO? HBO has what I call sort of their original sin, which is they really were explicitly programming toward men in the 1980s. And again, that was their way of like, okay, this is how we can be different from the broadcast networks. We think the networks are programming mostly to women, so we'll program to men. And this is why you had a lot of nudity. (laughs) I was going to say porn. (laughs) Exactly. Exclusively female nudity. You had documentary series like Real Sex and many documentary uh, documentary series that went into brothels. I mean, this is stuff. This is low-hanging fruit to appeal to men. And it's taken HBO a long time to sort of shake that off. Even when you programmed A Sex and a City, even when they programmed A True Blood, even when they programmed uh, A Girl's Lena Dunham show, you still had scene after scene and show after show from Deadwood to Boardwalk Empire to The Sopranos that takes place inside of a strip club. Mm -hmm. Uh, Game of Thrones critics really put them in hot water for having scene after scene of sexual violence against women. So it's taken HBO many years to try to shake it off. And we've seen in their programming in recent years between Big Little Lies, uh, Mayor of Easttown, I May Destroy You, much more of an effort to program two women. In 2016, 57% of HBO's Sunday night audience were men. Last year, for the first time, it was a 50-50 even split. That's John Koblen. He is a media reporter at the New York Times, just wrote the book, It's Not TV. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Colleen. Thanks, Dave. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. And our resident historian Felix Spinell is here for the Friday edition of All Over the Map. His quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, 
In exactly one year, the Neon Globe from the old Seattle PI will mark its 75th birthday, and a plan might be in the works to restore it to its former glory? Yes, let's is, not... <laughs> is the paper coming back? Oh, you is mean it... the... I'm uh, talking about the Globe, not the paper. Oh, the Globe. I, that's badly written. My fault. I apologize. <laughs> so the Globe, it's 30 feet in diameter, first installed at 6th and Wall Street, which was the PI's brand new headquarters back in early November 1948. It weighs about 14 tons. It's topped with an 18-foot-tall eagle. It was moved to the waterfront back in 85 when the PI moved their offices there after the joint operating agreement meant they didn't need to print their own paper anymore. Now, like the actual globe we all live on, the one the PI globe has seen better times. It used to be illuminated with neon tubes marking latitude and longitude and the boundaries of the continents. There's a band of letters around the equator which spell out it's in the PI, and that used to rotate used with a series of rubber tires, very complex uh, mechanism. That. Now, 10 years ago, it was made an official city landmark. There were hopes to restore it and maybe even find a new and better home. It still belongs to the Hearst Corporation. They don't have offices in that waterfront building anymore. I think their offices are over in West Seattle now. But Mohai has been the official steward of the globe for many years. Uh, the director over there, Leonard Garfield, says hopes are to eventually raise enough money to repair and restore the globe and fund its long-term annual operating expenses. Those aren't cheap. I remember back in 2000, a PI public affairs guy told me it was about $50,000 a year, 22 years ago, to maintain the globe. It's very complex. Probably take a million dollars, maybe $2 million to do this thing right. Uh, Garfield told me his idea would be for the, his ideal would be for the globe to be moved to the roof of a publicly owned building because if Mohai does eventually take legal possession of it, a public building would give it more long-term stability. Um, with that 75th anniversary a year away, it's probably too late to have it restored by November 2023. Let's acknowledge that right away. But the 75th birthday might be a good time to formally launch a campaign. And Mohai gets why it's important to preserve the globe. Uh, Leonard Garfield calls it seminal to downtown Seattle history. It has been on our skyline for decades. It reminds us of our role in the world, of our sense of our own importance. Uh, it helps light up the rainy nights that we endure for so many months of the year. Uh, and it really is a, a, a treasured landmark in our city. So Mohai is committed to working with community partners to help save the sign for generations to come. Yeah, and Mohai has a long relationship with Hearst and the PI. Many publishers served on the board. The museum has most of the PI's old photo collection. There's one little cool uh, backstory part to the globe. Mohai also has the PI's first neon sign, which is also believed to be the very first neon sign ever installed in Seattle. That was 95 years ago in June 1927. The original sign is shield-shaped, two-sided, 8 feet tall, 13 feet wide. It was on the old PI building at 6th and Pine and stuck out at a 45-degree angle over the sidewalk and was there until the PI moved down the street. All it says is PI in giant letters and their phone number, Main 2000. Mohai has it in their storage area. So in terms of restoring the globe, I mean, I think Mohai will launch a campaign because who could say no to help him make the world, even a neon one, a better place? Amen. <laughs> They can do an outdoor uh, neon park with all these signs. Yeah, There's it, the elephant car wash. The yeah, which, and the elephant car wash sign was right across the street from the PI for about 30 years. Yeah. Those were neighbors. And I saw that. Yeah, I got a sneak peek of the elephant sign all restored at Mohai in two pieces. I bet it looks spectacular. Yeah, there will be photos of that at my Northwest and on social media and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's all Neon Friday. Felix Spinell. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. Joining us now, the host of CBS's Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan. Well, I guess it's time for final predictions. If you were to place bets by this time next week, let's say, uh, who's in line to control Congress? Oh, gosh. Um, by this time next week, I think um, some votes may still be 
getting tabulated. Um, we don't expect to have a clear, quick result necessarily for all states. Um, in a place like Georgia, for example, there are expectations that we could even see a runoff that takes us to December. Um, that's normal. That's expected. Uh, but in terms of where CBS estimates are um, on the momentum going into Election Day, it does look like Republicans are going to take control of the House with 228 seats, not a red wave, but a majority. And the Senate, there are going to be a lot of close races, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Georgia, even Arizona. We'll be watching those closely as well. Does Trump announce Wednesday? <laughs> Look, I covered the, the Trump White House. Uh, I, I Nothing is certain until it comes out of the former president's mouth, um, because there are certainly advisors who share and have shared with CBS and other organizations that he has been vacillating. He has been debating exactly when to make this announcement. And certainly just within the past few days at rallies, he's leaned into the idea saying, oh, I think you'll all be very happy. And, you know, I may may soon announce. So he's a showman at the end of the day. So when the big reveal will be, uh, is it on midterm night? Is it uh, after his daughter's wedding? Is it before Thanksgiving? It, that I, I find that a losing bet to place until it happened. Uh, did you read your George Will's blistering column saying yes, that Biden and Harris should drop out and drop out now. Uh, what do you think? I did see that. Uh, George Will may be an anti-Trump Republican, but he is a Republican. So it's not surprising necessarily to see that he has criticism of the um, party in power right now uh, in terms of the speculation as to who could run if the current president does not. Um, that's been sort of the cocktail party chatter for for well over a year in Washington of would the vice president be the choice or will others in the administration like a Pete Buttigieg, a transportation secretary who's been traveling the country talking and handing out money as part of the infrastructure development program? Um, is it one of the upcoming governors like uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California that would throw their hat in the ring. We know President Biden says he has every intention to run. So a lot depends, um, I think, as well on the question you asked me earlier uh, in terms of who he'd be running against. You know, there are other other candidates out there, too. I mean, there's a lot of jockeying within the Republican Party on who might be the uh, either, quote unquote, successor to the MAGA movement, which would be more of a sort of Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida type, or uh, is the traditional George Will era of the conservative movement, the Republican Party, something that is really just for the history books and not actually politically viable in today's climate. And on the threat to democracy and the threats to individual officials, <laughs> I watched your epic grilling of Tom Emmer, the chair of the National Republican Campaign Committee, last week about ads that include uh, violence. And, you know, he, he defended it and said, you know, basically, uh, this is all part of the game. But I'm curious, off camera, are, are these guys really that clueless about the potential effect of, you know, ads that include, in that case, what, with firing a gun or whatever it was, uh, the, the potential just setting off crazy people? Um, are you suggesting that he wasn't answering honestly? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I would love to know the answer to that because certainly um, I, I find it chilling. I find it very concerning when I read these intelligence reports, as we saw last Friday, that came out that 
that listed the threats that we're seeing um, from domestic violent extremists who are energized and mobilized by, um, you know, more extreme rhetoric. And that intelligence bulletin specifically re- drew a line um, connecting that to folks who are denying the results of the 2020 election. And so entertaining that rhetoric, uh, even if it's a wink and a nod and it's not the full, well, you know, denying the full election, but saying, oh, well, I have questions or, oh, well, I have that casting of doubt that lends oxygen to extremism and to falsehood is dangerous. And honestly, personally, as a journalist, you know, we have nothing if not integrity in fact. And so we have to continuously push back on that. I think, and I think all of us in our business as journalists need to be responsible in the language we choose in these moments um, because we are so on edge and and we're seeing that in, in the threat stream out there. People need to lower the rhetoric take a deep breath, depersonalize it. If it's about the economy, tell me what your policy is. If it's about the person, that's a different matter. We've seen our politics get really personalized and uh, the, the rhetoric, I think, get really out of control. Margaret Brennan, Face the Nation moderator and CBS News Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent. win for state attorney general bob ferguson he's been trying to slow down that grocery merger between albertson's and kroger and this means a huge dividend payment that would have occurred with that merger is now on hold a report from cairo news radio's hannah scott State Attorney General Bob Ferguson filed a lawsuit Tuesday claiming the $4 million payout is illegal because it could undercut Albertson's ability to compete with Kroger during the several years it will be needed to complete the merger. One of the primary concerns is whether Albertson's, having paid so much out to shareholders, would still be able to keep all of its locations open during the merger process. In order to get approval for the merger, Albertson's and Kroger have to sell hundreds of locations in areas where they have too much market overlap, and that could significantly affect Washington locations. A King County Superior Court commissioner yesterday approved Ferguson's motion to temporarily block the payment of that dividend, which is supposed to happen on Monday. Good news for Attorney General Bob Ferguson. It's a huge victory. There's no other way to put it. It puts a stop to this $4 billion payment that had the potential to have huge implications for Americans when they go grocery shopping and for workers who work in these grocery stores. So it's a big victory and we're very excited. What happens next is we go back before a different judge in a week seeking what's called a preliminary injunction, which would completely stop it until the judge can rule on the underlining complaint that we filed about this deal. So stated another way, we filed a lawsuit a couple of days ago trying to stop this $4 billion payment. The problem is that payment's going out the door in several days. So we had to ask the judge to put a temporary stop to it before it happens to give the judge more time to consider the ramifications of this act. Several attorneys generals from other states also are filing legal action in federal court, similar to Ferguson's. And our job is to look at a merger and make an independent and impartial evaluation of whether or not it's lawful or not. And sometimes we review mergers and determine them to be legal. Sometimes we think they're illegal and have to challenge them. But there's a process that goes into that. And what we're concerned about is this $4 billion payment made on very short notice, which would weaken Albertsons dramatically from a competitive standpoint, uh, was definitely illegal. And that's why we're really pleased with the outcome today, because it gives regulators like the state of Washington and the federal government time to review the proposed merger. You know, my part of North Seattle, 
You know, I've got two grocery stores uh, basically almost within walking distance of each other. They are owned by each of these two competitors. And if those competitors are no longer competing, guess what's going to happen? Prices are going to go up and workers have fewer opportunities. Those are two negative things. We need to do our analysis of whether or not that merger is lawful or not. And uh, we need to have time to do that. A key component was putting a stop to this $4 billion payment. Meantime, Albertson says it intends to seek to overturn the restraint as quickly as possible, saying that the temporary order was based on the incorrect assertion that payment of the special dividend would impair its ability to compete while its proposed merger with Kroger is under antitrust review. Some experts tell the Seattle Times the attorney generals are likely to have an uphill climb to stop the dividend altogether, but agree that lawsuits like the one Washington and other states are filing are likely to complicate the process. So Hannah, what's the company's side of the story? I know that when dividends go out, it sounds like a, a lot of money and $4 billion is a lot of money, but it goes to shareholders, many of whom have, let's say, retirement accounts. Sometimes it's uh, held by company pension funds. What about that? Uh, yeah, and I don't have the full details from Albertsons. I just know that they said in a statement late last night that they are going to seek to overturn this uh, temporary restraining order that came out yesterday because they say it was based on uh, the wrong assertion that the payment of that dividend would hurt its ability to compete with mm-hmm. while it's uh, the proposed merger is going on. So it seems like Albertsons is saying, you know, they're they're financially fine to compete and keep going forward. So uh, we'll have to see what happens. I, I will say that the commissioner, the court commissioner who made this temporary ruling yesterday uh, stated in the last few minutes uh, of the proceedings that look, there's obviously more evidence that needs to come. This is an emergency motion, right? So it, it certainly hasn't played out by any means. And uh, But the uh, attorney general said that one thing he wanted to point out was that this court commissioner wouldn't make the decision to do this unless he saw some that there was an actual threat, that, that right. they thought that they were likely to be the ones to win. So we'll yeah, see. So the fact that the, that the court went along with this indicates that there is some some fire behind the smoke here. Now, I'm, I'm, I know that there's been a lot of consolidation in this area, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not really uh, up on all of it. So if this were to go through, does this mean that basically... All the grocery stores in this area are owned by the same company? I believe so. And that's just from my own personal perspective, from where I shop, right? So I remember, I don't remember how many years ago it was because I don't believe Safeway and Albertsons used to be owned by the same company. Uh, they, I think they merged sometimes back and they're, because the, the prices are now, uh, they have the same ads, right? They have the same sales. Yeah. And before they didn't used to when I first moved here. And there was, it was more, it was better for me, right? It was better for me, the shopper. There was better deals and different deals. So if you have everything owned by the same, I can't imagine uh, that all happening where it's all owned by just the one company, yeah. because I think there is a very lo- valid concern. And almost every store in the state, yeah, is owned, is owned would be owned by them and many other states as well. So and I don't think it got to it in that report that you just played, but there are three other attorneys general who are filing right. a similar suit in federal court as well. I'm looking at the uh, Kroger website here. They own, I'm just looking at the familiar ones. It's like 500. Uh, Fred, well, Fred Meyer, uh, Kroger, yeah. of course, King Supers, Metro Market, QFC, QFC. yeah, mm-hmm. right, yeah, huge. All right, thank you, Hannah. You betcha. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Baird. In the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, a restaurant in Fort Myers, Florida, is serving up more than a good meal. Here's CBS's Manuel Bajorquez. Where are we at on potatoes? Every morning. 
Doug Miller and his staff get cooking. A cooked tortilla makes all the difference in the world. The restaurant is called FK Your Diet. But before you get the wrong idea, the FK stands for foster kids, whom Miller supports. I was a foster kid growing up. But his mission has greatly expanded due to Hurricane Ian and the thousands left with very little. They don't have the ability to just go out and buy a new stove or a new refrigerator. A lot of them, the place they worked got damaged, so they're not getting a paycheck. All right. So the food here is free. And for those who can't get here, Miller delivers. Okay. You doing okay? I'm doing okay, thank you. 125,000 meals so far. His girlfriend, Amy Eldridge, distributes donated supplies. We can't personally fix what they've lost, but we can bring some comfort to their day. So that's our hope. Comfort that Aranda Cruz Garcia says keeps her going. Even though when you're at your saddest moments, he's here for you. All right, love you. How many you got, Dad? A former foster kid now fostering an entire community. How many? Manuel Bajorquez, CBS News, Fort Myers. 748 and now from the Gianersla Show, which starts at 9 right here in Cairo News Radio. Geez, Scott, my favorite part of the morning. Head to Arizona to play the Cardinals. Yeah. Didn't they just beat the Cardinals? They sure did. Just like like three or four weeks ago. Why are they playing uh, them so soon again? Well, you know, that's sometimes just how the schedule grow, goes. Is, you know, they get ready to take care of this game, and then after this game, they fly out to Munich. Munich? Munich. 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 Yeah. Where Marshawn Lynch is already there. Yeah, Just he's sort out of there. traipsing around Germany, having Chilling. fun. Yeah. Chilling, right? <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a Seahawk game that's happening this Sunday down there in Glendale, Arizona, against the Arizona Cardinals. And... Here's what's different. What's different is is the Seahawks right now are five and three. They are number one in the NFC West division. Uh, they have three players that have been just announced as uh, NFC players, offensive players of the month. One of them being um, defensive defensive player of the month. You had Geno Smith, outstanding month. You had uh, K9, Kenneth Walker the third, the one I've been telling y'all about. K9. Why do you call him K9? That's his nickname. That's his nickname. Oh. Yeah. It is well, number. I know it's K-9. his nickname. I'm K-9. just wondering where it came from. You guys. Number <laughs> nine. Number nine. And then, and then Tariq Woolen, and who. Like this Seahawks team has gone from, okay, the Seahawks are going to play today. I hope they win to they're back to now having our expectations yes. change of, okay, they're going to win this game. Now folks are actually looking at the schedule saying, okay, hmm, I think the Seahawks can win this game. Oh, they can win this game. They're going to go out to Germany, play against Tampa Bay. Hmm, Tom Brady got some issues going on in his personal life. Wow. I think the Seahawks can win that game. Like people now are making plans now and expectations to see the Seahawks in the playoffs in January. Wouldn't that be sweet? Doesn't oh. that feel good? Oh, my. It but, but, really but, but, does. But, 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 but. Is, this real, is it realistic or is this just uh, irrational exuberance? Facts. It's, 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 it's facts. It's, it's, it's realistic. Okay. Let, let, let's just say this. Um, I'm not going to see. They have nine games left to go. They've already played eight. They have nine regular, seasons, uh, regular season games to go. Is it realistic that they can go six and three? Which yeah. would you know what I mean? Yeah. They could realistically go six and three, just lose maybe three more games, and that, I guarantee you that's going to put them in the playoffs, and that's having them sitting pretty. Oh, you're going to oh, guarantee it? No, I'm not going to guarantee it. Okay, you just said that, but I tell you, I tell you some beautiful stuff too. Yes, <laughs> going into next year, like this Seahawks team is really setting up for the future because you know those 
first-round draft picks that they got from the Denver Broncos, that's going to be sitting pretty next year as well. So, again, there's all kinds of good stuff. I know you're going to ask me for the score, so let's get the score <laughs> out of the way right now. Really the, score, the, score? the score is going to be yes. 31. 31. <laughs> Eventually you'll hit 31. 19. 31 is that what you play on roulette, too? Is that why you're always going with yes. the same numbers? Hey, same number. What color do you think I go? <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> okay. okay, Wesley Snipes. Passenger 57. 31 black, please. Yeah, there you go. So, so if, if there was a team that could pose a real problem for them, which one, which team would that be? I, w- I, w- I would say, I mean, it's a d- the division teams, right? I would say that those posing for the, the problem for them would be the San Francisco 49ers and the Rams, Rams right? Rams. You know, they still have to see the Rams two times, right? They're going to go down to the Rams and play them December 6th, and then Bobby Wagner and the Rams are going to come here in late December. So, yeah, the Rams are still... This NFC West division is still a tough tough opponent. So, um, take care of the division first. Right now, they're sitting in first place. Let's go down. Let them go down and win this game down in Glendale. Take care of that. That puts them at 6-3. and three. They travel out to Munich. And they go against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Tom Brady. It looks like the Broncos have a bye week, or are they play, they're playing Sunday, November 13th against the Titans. So, what, mm. Russell gets some time to, to rest up? Yes, he does. Uh, he does not have to do high knees. Uh, <laughs> but according does. to him, his teammates do. And then, and then on the way back, I mean, before he came back, he let it be known like, hey, maybe my teammates should do high knees yeah. uh, instead of playing Uno. And before you guys text and go, why are you guys so obsessed with Russell? It's because he's our ex. We got to keep tabs on him. Come on now. <laughs> Look at Colleen making a relationship <laughs> analogies. Always. <laughs> Life is all about relationships. What's so funny, Dave? I, do, I, I, I don't get it, but that's okay. <laughs> you keep talking. I'm fascinated. <laughs> um, before we go, though, let's talk about yes. this. Dave, yes. have you bought a lottery ticket? No. Why, Why would, not? Why not? Just because, well, I, I'm not usually in a place that's does the library sell lottery tickets. I'm not in, in places that sell them. I feel like if anybody okay. needs $1.5 billion, it's Dave because he'll do good stuff with it. I see. I'm glad you brought that up. Dave, point, obviously, yeah. this is your show. You probably got about 20 seconds. What would you do <laughs> if you and your wife won $1.6 billion? I'd not, not tell anybody. Yeah, that rings true. That's all you yeah. got, Dave? He would stay anonymous. <laughs> that's yeah. it. I, w- I would have no... I have, I have no... Well, actually... It would be an obligation. I'd be obligated to start a company that would provide jobs to people who have no skills. So So you're buying a radio station? Yeah. (laughs) I would buy this radio station. Dave, Dave, would you give me a million dollars? Well, if you needed it, sure. What the heck? If you needed it. So right right now, if I need $100, do you you lend me $100 right now? Sure. All right. That's nice. Okay, thank you. Do that you? Was a good one. He though, needs to so clean his shoes. I, I don't have it on me right now. <laughs> Can you get Venmo cash app? I don't know what Venmo is. Well, I know what it is. He needs money because he keeps buying shoes for you to try on. <laughs> but he needs money because he has to park in downtown Seattle from time to time. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.